Welcome and thank you for being here with the return of winter. Uh, but this should give you a little bit of an advance taste of summertime camping since we're going to be talking about camping and tents today. Uh, I'm really not a representative of REI or any of those other camping stores, but (laughs) uh, it is ironic in a sense to realize that what we are talking about today is camping and a very special camping experience that went for 40 years. Uh, They didn't come home after the weekend. So I'd like to open in a word of prayer, just asking the Lord's help as we look at his words. So if we could just pause for one moment, I want to bring this before him. Father in heaven, thank you so very much for your word that tells us of each stage of your journey with people, making a people of your own. And thank you that here in 2019, we get to be part of your people. So we ask that you'd take something that in its reality is very strange and exotic and a bit odd sounding to us and let it come alive, make sense, and challenge our own walks with you today. May you grant me words to say that will make your word clear and may you, Holy Spirit, be active among all of us in all our interactions. Uh, Point us to your your nature as God. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are ready to go camping with God. Uh, The tabernacle out in the wilderness. And really, we have to begin this by asking a very basic question. Why, in heaven's name, would God want a tent? Why does God ask for a tent? Because that's really what the story of the tabernacle is. And those of those many of you here, I'm sure, were raised in a church, uh, as I was, and the story is too familiar. And we lose some of the strangeness of this request uh, and its exotic oddity. Think of it. Here we have the God of the universe who has recently hurled catastrophic plagues at Egypt and with finality defeated Pharaoh at the Red Sea. And what does he want? He wants a tent. That's a bit unexpected. Why in the world would God want a tent to live in? Well, this is the story of the tabernacle. So how should we approach understanding a tent from 3,300 years in the past? What might a tent imply? Is there any meaning to this? There's got to be some meaning because it takes up a lot of text space in the Bible, in the book of Exodus especially. So it's got to be important because there's a lot of space devoted to it. But what, what does it mean for me now? Now, if you were raised in the church, as many of you, I suspect, were, You may have heard pastoral flights of fancy that took the tabernacle and made it into a gospel tract, basically, that did all kinds of creative things with the tabernacle. The tent stakes are the nails on Jesus's cross, and uh, it just goes from there. Uh, But one of the things I 
can pretty well guarantee you is that nobody in Israel thought the tent stakes were Jesus's nails because they didn't know about Jesus yet. And if it's being set up and communicated, it's got to have some meaning then for the people of Israel, and God's trying to communicate something. What would God be trying to get across to them? It's not about Jesus directly. Couldn't be, because they don't know about Jesus. They don't have the Gospels. They're not doing that. So they would be assuming other things. Uh, there's, If you look at it, there's a wildly creative history of interpreting the tabernacle over the two millennia of church history. Many church leaders over the years have desired to do all kinds of fanciful creative things with the tabernacle because they're not quite sure what to do with it but if we can't go there where do we go what do we do uh well the first piece of it for the first piece of advice is knowing what i heard growing up and the desire to make it about jesus and about us and about christians we're really not free to run wild with our imagination because you can't read anything in a fair way without starting to ask what is, is, what is being communicated? What's God communicating through his word? I want to hear him speak. I want to hear him on his own terms, so I need to listen carefully. And so I can't just say, hey, this is about me, my life, and my experience. This is about Jesus. This is the gospel. And smash it back onto the Bible text, which is a temptation for us as Christians. Because it doesn't start with me. It starts 3,300 years ago with somebody else. So how do we find meaning here? Well, I think the key is to simply think about how communication works. And this is a key to understanding the person sitting at the table next to you, your spouse, your children, your parents, and the people at the office. Communication always works in certain ways wherever we are. The Bible, of course, is God communicating with us, and it actually has a double layer to it because God sometimes speaks directly, but it's not a an audio recording God gave us of him at Mount Sinai, which would be wonderful if he had. Instead, somebody writes down what God was saying. And often, God has people who have a heart for him who say things and communicate to other people. So there's another layer. There's God communicating to us. It's his word. But he uses people communicating to people to get his point across. So, How do people communicate and how would God communicate even with these interwoven double levels? How does this coincide? Well, to know what God's saying to me today, 2019, I've got to start with what the person who spoke or wrote back then was trying to communicate to people back then. The Bible starts then. Even the prophets that we think are foretelling the future are speaking to people who are alive right when they're alive. So their message was not really a secret message that was waiting for us. It was a message for their contemporaries. Everything in the Bible happens that way. That's how communication works. So what's the idea of a tent? 
Why would God have communicated about this to the Israelites? And how would they have perceived God's request for a tent and giving all this detail about how to assemble it? How can we figure this out? Well, uh, we've got one basic place to start from. And that's quite simply, we've got the biblical text. Uh, We have the text and it will show us the intentions that will lead us to see how they understood it so that we can start understanding it ourselves. Because to understand a tent, why do you say something to your spouse in the morning, to the person at the office in the afternoon? There's always a context in which communication happens. And part of our challenge reading the Bible is we're not in their context. Almost always we have to start and go somewhere else in history and time to figure out what they're thinking about first, what their concerns are, what their questions are, because you communicate to people to answer questions that make sense in your situation, in your context. So what is going on in their context? What would a human author have communicated? Well, we have to begin with the text we have, which gives us a story about a tent. Who were these people who generated this story? Well, we could say a number of things about them. One, they're living over three millennia ago. They are Semites. They're in a very different cultural stream than you and I are. They are not modern Americans. And this is a big group of people who have been oppressed as state slaves for long, hard years of dreary servitude. And they have just been liberated. So do not assume that they're U of I graduates, because they're not. They didn't even go to college. Most of them probably have spent the majority of their life working their tails off because the Egyptian taskmasters are going to whip them if they don't produce enough, coming home exhausted at night and falling asleep. So they don't have a lot of background with God. They haven't been reading and learning about what God's done in the past because most of them probably don't know how to read. And most of them, or if they do, it's a much more rudimentary knowledge. And they don't have books. They don't go to Barnes & Noble. It's going to be whatever is passed on orally. And a lot of their life has been devoted just to surviving. So we have to get back into who were they first. Uh, So here's where we are going to have to start. We're going to begin with the text we have, the literary theological context in a book. We have Exodus 25 to 40. That'll tell you how to assemble a tabernacle and what you do with it. The directions and the story of building it are in the book of Exodus. So we know that it fits in with the book of Exodus in a some way. There's a bigger context in the piece of literature. But I also know that Exodus follows Genesis and precedes Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and a whole rest of the Bible. 
So it's part of an ongoing trajectory. God's been on a trajectory for many thousands of years. And he will continue to go on that trajectory. And he's still on that trajectory. The story of the tent fits into that grand trajectory as well. So we've got to look at the text in this big context of redemption. But we also have to start with what the text meant to them. There is a context in life. What would an ancient Israelite have thought seeing the tent? What would it suggest to them? What would they have concluded from a God tent set up there in the desert with them? There's a context of time and culture in their history that determines what they would perceive. So this is a group of freed slaves who've seen God show up when Moses showed up and watched a devastating series of plagues wreck the Egyptians' confidence in all the gods that Egypt had been working and erode their confidence that their king was divine and then leave, be saved by an incredible display at the Red Sea, and now we're marching through the desert. It's hot, there isn't water, and we've got to watch God day by day now providing what we need for bare survival. Food, manna, quail, and water. It's not readily available out in the Sinai. So we know that there's... The, God's speaking to these people. And now they've gotten to Mount Sinai, a mountain and a barren and foreboding desert. And we're on the way to the land God promised to give us. So let's first put the tabernacle in its place. There's a context in which these chapters occur, and it is a context from God's word that we need to think more broadly than just Okay, how big do we make the bronze altar of incense? How big, how, how big are the coverings that we put over the top of the tabernacle? Those are all details there, but don't start there. Start with the story and where we are because it's moving along. First, we're building on Genesis. So what happened in Genesis? Well, God made everything. In Genesis, God created the world. And we know that in chapter 1, it gives you the global picture, like this giant masterpiece painting, of God making everything. And it's addressing people thousands of years ago who are worried, not about evolution, they're worried about gods from Canaan, gods from Babylon, Egypt, Mesopotamia, that all their neighbors claim made everything. Genesis responds to their questions, which is God, the God of Israel, is the one who made everything. He's majestic. He's incredible. Look at what he did. Then in chapter two, we zoom focus in. God makes a special place, this little garden called Eden, that is a unique environment in which he puts the first couple, man and woman. Eventually, they become Adam and Eve. But we start with them actually as the, fir you know, the first guy and the first gal, basically. And so God makes the world 
What would it have been like to live in Eden? What is the single distinguishing characteristic of life in Eden? How is it different from life in Champaign-Urbana? Well, it's radically different. And I think that the biggest difference is that when Adam and Eve get up in the morning, God may show up to take a walk with them and talk with them. What they had that Champaign-Urbana doesn't offer me is an incredible immediacy in the sense of God being present. He is right there. He communicates. He's at my side. I don't ponder, does God exist? Because for heaven's sakes, he shows up and takes walks and chats with me. So what an environment, what an existence. They enjoy his presence and they are the original green couple because their whole purpose, their task is assigned by God to take care of the garden. In other words, he makes a little tiny area of his creation and says, now I entrust this to you. So he invites us to join him in his creative process and continue to care for his world that he's already made. So what's their purpose? To be with God, work with God, worship God, enjoy his presence. Eden is a place that is set apart for this experience of God. That's what it's really all about. It's been observed by many people over the years that Eden functions as if it's a temple. It's a space set apart to enjoy God, to enjoy the sense of his presence. It's even got a priest, Adam, a priestess, Eve. Hmm, interesting thought. Uh, but there's the two of them right there. Unfortunately, the story doesn't go uh, unerringly along, which is why we have Champaign-Urbana and don't live in Eden still. The couple choose to go their own way. They sin, defy God, and they are evicted. What do they lose that is most precious? They lose the presence of God, the sense of his immediacy right there with them. And now they don't get to take walks in the same way. And they don't hear him speak directly as frequently and regularly. They enter life as you and I experience it. Life as we know it. But God keeps reaching out. God doesn't give up on us. He didn't give up on Adam and Eve or their descendants. And if you keep going through the story of Genesis, uh, you'll find that he gives them a promise that there's going to be somehow a descendant of Eve somewhere down the line who will smash the head of that nasty snake who wrecked everything and deprived them of the presence of God by their own choice, but they were tucked into it by a lying, dirty snake. And God says that I'm going to deal with this. Notice that already it's God who is going to have to initiate saving us. And the picture we get is that Messiah is coming and he'll smash the snake's head. So we're looking. We say, hey, it's Jesus. Yes, we know that's Jesus retrospectively. But all they know is it's a serpent head crusher. That's what God's going to send. 
So it speaks to where they are. And so God keeps reaching out. And a few chapters later, sin gets worse and worse and it gets so it culminates and the flood comes and God saves Noah through the flood. And when he comes off the ark, enters into a covenant with him. What's a covenant? A covenant's a relationship that connects and binds two parties together. If you're married, you're in a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. You bound yourself to your spouse, made promises to each other. And when you had that wedding, you created a covenant, a new relationship, which redefines how you interact with each other for the rest of your lives. So God, the years go on, and God will speak to Abraham, chapter 12. And when he talks to Abraham, God gives him an extravagant promise. Even though Sarah cannot bear children, and they're childless, and they're in their 70s and 60s, and it's not going to happen, God says that he will give them children who will become a great nation that will end up with so many of them. And he's going to give a place for this people he's going to make to be his own from Abraham's seed, and he'll bless them. And when you hear that term bless in the Old Testament, it's tantamount to the idea of enjoying the presence of God. Blessing means I know God's here with me. Blessing means I know his favor. He's talking to me. He's guiding me. He's providing for me. Truly blessed is someone who enjoys his presence. So God makes a promise that he's going to create, get, make a place, he's going to give a place to a people who will enjoy his presence. Three Ps. People enjoying the presence of God in a place he has crafted for them. And then in chapters 15 and 17, God shows up again and confirms that promise in the form of a covenant. And though this is beyond the scope of what we're doing today, if you track from Genesis to Revelation, you will find that every covenant has to do with God making a people of his own who will enjoy his presence, and he sets them up with some appropriate place to do that. Those three features show up pretty much in every covenant situation. So God keeps working but you wonder if god can provide that place because the patriarchs are wandering through the land how likely as you meet jacob and esau and isaac and you see the dysfunctional family of promise how likely is it that they will ever become a great nation and they wander make poor choices and hurt each other, you are left to ponder whether they really understand the presence of God and benefit from it at all. And then it gets worse because as the book ends, we come to Exodus. And when the curtain goes up on Exodus, we find that there's descendants of Abraham multiplying rapidly so you got a big population, but that big population 
And that's, there's the raw material for a great nation. So you're going, yes, God's doing what we need, but they get enslaved. Pharaoh is threatened. Pharaoh oppresses them. And they are made slaves to work on Pharaoh's big project. So it picks up on where we've been. Uh, does it seem to you that this people are in a place God has for them? No, no, this isn't the land. God's already said that land's up in Canaan. How about enjoying the presence of God? Well, if you are at the whip of the Egyptian taskmaster for your whole career, my guess is that it felt to most of the Israelites like God wasn't even there at all. For years, it's just so bleak. And hope would be in short supply. Uh, because this is a terrible existence. They are out of the promised land. They're in exile. They are cut off. It looks like God isn't at all there with them. Where's his presence? It looks bleak. It looks hopeless. So here we are, and we wonder. It raises three questions. One, is God even present with his people at all? Two, whom will they serve? It raises the question of their master because they are serving Pharaoh and all their energy and efforts are devoted to him. And who will determine what they do? Their purpose in life. Well, Pharaoh determines what they'll do. They're working on his store cities. It's his show. And so it feels all out of whack. We are raising three questions with this story at the beginning. The presence of God, who's their master, and what's their purpose in life? What are they accomplishing? But God shows up in a big way to save and redeem them. There's the devastation of the plagues against Egypt. And if you read that story, you'll notice that all the plagues are directed at the gods of Egypt. That each plague is taking out a deity or more that the Egyptians would rely on. And none of them show up to defend their turf because they don't exist. So this, if the Israelites were tempted, and I suspect some of them probably did worship the Egyptian gods, and then for the Egyptians, what an apologetic, what a defense of the faith. It is only Yahweh, the God of Israel, He's it. That's the only God in town. And the plagues show clearly that this is the case. So they escape. The great escape is through the, after the Passover through the Red Sea, which is the ultimate defeat of Pharaoh, whom the Egyptians hold to be one and the same with Amon-Ra, the sun god. He is divinity incarnate in human flesh. And then they head into the desert, and as they go, God provides them with water and food and guidance until they come way out where nobody's going to bug them by a barren mountain called Sinai, far down in the Sinai Peninsula. And in, at Sinai, they all camp beneath the mountain, the camp of the Israelites down there, and God descends on the top of the mountain. 
He comes down and you know he's there because there's a cloud that's come down and there's fire in the cloud and there's lightning and there's the rumble of thunder and the earth is quaking and there's a trumpet blast sounding. So you can't mistake that God has shown up. There is something living and vibrant and dynamic up on top and a bit scary up on top of the mountain. And so the Israelites encounter this God who got them out of Egypt. All of a sudden, if you grew up as a slave and wondered, is our God even here? Does he care? All of a sudden, I step out of my tent in the morning, I look up to the top of the mountain, and there he is in a cloud, in the fire, in the thunder, in the lightning, in the quaking. I, I, no question, he is all of a sudden present with us way up top the mountain. It's a distant presence. It leaves you trembling with fear from this awesome display of the phenomena that testify to his reality and power. And you will notice, too, that there is a way that this mountain has been arranged by God. The people are all down in the valley. Some of the elders can go, and the priests, those who will be the priests eventually, will, can go up on the mountain to a certain spot that God designates where they can meet with God, but only Moses can go all the way to the summit and talk directly with God or here directly from God. So there's three zones of increasing holiness as you get closer to God and restricting the access as you go up. As we are here at the mount, God gives them a, a yeah, he gives them the law. I want to come back to that other slide uh, in a moment. He gives them the law. What's the law? The law is God's way of saying, here's what I'm like. Here's what I value. And I want you down there to reflect what I'm like. I want you to look like me. And that's why he gives such clear guidance in the law. The law is aimed at 13th century B.C. Israelites. So some of the situations seem different from ours. But the values and the heart of God are just the same today. And that law, of course, is part of making a covenant. Whenever you sign a treaty between two nations or a couple gets married, the treaty has stipulations. The wedding vows say, this is what I'll do. I'll love you, honor you, cherish you, and take the trash out on Thursdays or whatever you put in your wedding vows. Uh, the... The law are the stipulations of the covenant. So again, law is a very relational idea. So these people who know virtually nothing about God all of a sudden see that he's present right there with them and they start to learn about what he's like. He discloses his nature to them and says, here's how I call you to live. And they agree that they will obey God. They say, okay, we're signing on. So notice, by the way, as God now has the whole nation there, he's entering into a covenant with them, and he's picking up on what he promised Abraham and made as a covenant relationship with Abraham. Here's the great nation. Now we've got the people. 
they're finally free from Egypt, God makes them his own great nation by covenant. They are on the way to the land and they're really starting to sense the presence of God. It's at least visible up on top of the mountain now. And so things are moving. Chapter 24, the elders go up onto the mountain and they meet partway partway up with God. And then God summons Moses all the way up to the top, which is where we arrive at Exodus 25. And in Exodus 25, Moses disappears for 40 days at the top of the mountain and God gives him the instructions for the tabernacle. In 25 to 31, God gives him all the details about how to set up a tent for God. And then in 35 to 40, they will carry it out. And one of the things that you should notice is that it seems to delight in giving you the details, which indicates a couple of things. One, it's really important. God gave us a lot of details about it. So actually, as much as we think, "Eh, this is boring, I'd like to skip to where the story gets exciting again. There's a reason it's all there. This is God's word. And it also is a celebration. You know, they told you how to make it in the first set of chapters, 25 to 31. Then 35 to 40, it repeats so many of the details again. Why? Because you know what they're doing? They're obeying God. How often do we get to see that happen in the Bible or our own lives? It's celebrating. It's like the, the details are a dance saying, my heavens, they are obeying God. Look at what's happening. This is unbelievable. They're actually doing it the right way. So we're ready then to find out about this tent, the tabernacle for which God gives us these instructions. So putting the tabernacle together, the tent God wanted, the verbal blueprints. Part of the problem with these chapters is they are like verbal blueprints. It's like blueprints, gives you all the dimensions and the materials Only there's no blueprint. (laughs) It's just verbal, which makes it hard to read and follow. Uh, I have provided you with a two-scale drawing of the tabernacle because I think that's actually helpful. I hope that's helpful. There's one on your outline too, but this is more detail and blown up bigger so that you can take it home and frame it. Uh, Treat it properly. Okay. Now, I'm also going to do something at this point. I'm going to break this part down into three. It's in one unit in your, um, in your outline. I'm actually going to make it into three. I thought I could do it. I think it's clearer if we do it in three steps rather than in one. So I'm going to add something to your outline here uh, that became clear to me at about 10 o'clock last night. So that's why it's not in your outline. Uh, which is which is fine, but just so you know what I'm doing. So I want to focus right now on the verbal blueprints, which is chapters 25 to 31. Now, what have we just gone through? The people have just gotten to Sinai, seen God come down. He's communicating with them. He gives them the law. He enters into a covenant that binds him relationally to these people they're connected now they're his great nation his people and god all of a sudden says 
Here's the directions for the tent. So the tent is positioned in the Bible, in Exodus, as the response that God is looking for from the people, a response to his covenant, a response to making a relationship with the people. The first thing God says is, let's make a tent. And that tent then is the proper how we come back to God now that we're in this relationship. So it's a little like this is the honeymoon. We just got married, okay? And on the honeymoon, we say, okay, now here are all the blueprint details for the tent. Uh, and there, So this is important, evidently. And it will, God communicates what he'd like. He wants a tent. We move step by step through what will be needed and what is to be constructed, okay? And you're going to notice uh, as you go, go along in the outline on the second page, you have a neat chart that lists the material, the furniture, and where it's being described. We're, we're going to come to that in a moment. But I just want us to think a little bit about how we're setting this up. The tent God wanted. Well, there's a plan. And let's talk for a moment about the words that are used to describe this tent. There's three basic ways it's talked about in the Bible. There's three Hebrew words. The first word, and maybe the most common, is that this is the mishkan, which comes from a verb, shakan, which means to dwell, means to settle down. It means to put up your tent and stay in a place. But a shakan as an action doesn't mean you're there permanently. It's not like you built a house in southwest Champaign and you spent the next 40 years there. You, there's a different word you'd use to describe that. This is more where you dwell along the way as you're going somewhere. So this is the mishkan. It is the dwelling place of God while he's en route. It's also called the Ohel Moed. Ohel means tent. It's many seminary students' favorite Hebrew word uh, because it goes Ohel. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I have a friend, actually, who, when he was in seminary and discovered that in Hebrew class, the, he, he and his buddies all used this as an exclamation. They would just be frustrated with something and they'd just be going, tent, tent, under their breath because they all knew what that was. Okay, so it's the Ohel Moed, which is the tent where you meet with somebody. It's a tent where somebody comes to see you, and there's some communication going back and forth. It's also called the Mikdash, which comes from Kodesh, which is the Hebrew for holy. So the Mikdash is a structure that's like a temple. It's holy, it's sacred, it's different from the common territory, it's set apart, it's distinguished. Why? Because God lives there. So, there's your vocabulary. We also know the arrangement. And the arrangement, the plan, as you can see on both of the little charts you have, is in three parts. There is a big court in front of the tabernacle. 
where there are two sections, the holy place and then the inner sanctum, the holy of holies. So just as the mount had three zones of holiness and restricted access, so the tent of God has three zones that determine who can go where. And, of course, you've got the chart which gives you the uh, dimensions. I do want you to notice on the dimensions the symmetry that you have. So the courtyard is 100 by 50. The measurements are cubits. Cubit is like a foot and a half. It's like 18 inches. Usually they say that the ancients would measure a cubit from your fingertip to your elbow which of course means that there will be varying size cubits in different buildings, and indeed there are in the ancient world. Uh, so, but just use 18 inches or 1.5 feet if you want to convert uh, the, this into our measurements. So you've got a 100 by 50 rectangle that is the court. The short sides are oriented east-west, and there is a 20-cubit entrance on the east side. The court contains the altar of burnt offering and the laver. Then there is the tent. And one of the reasons to give you this handy-dandy little diagram is it does show you the proportions. So the tent is actually compared to the courtyard it's actually fairly it feels small but there's two parts to the tent there is the holy place which has three items of furniture notice how simple this is there's what we labeled as c the table where they'll place the showbread d the menorah candlestick and b the altar of incense this is 20 by 10 cubits. Then there is a veil that delineates the Holy of Holies where only the high priest can enter once a year on the Day of Atonement. In the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim sculptures overshadowing the Ark with their wings. This is a perfect cube. It's 10 cubits by 10 cubits, by 10 cubits, 10 cubits high too. So actually the Holy of Holies is a cube uh, in, in its dimensions, in its, its geometry. So here we have the tabernacle. There are also, of course, zones in the camp. Uh, the, the geometry, actually before we do the geometry, just on the plan, Remember that in the camp, this is going to be right in the center. And around the tabernacle, who can set up their tents? Who camps next to God in the campground? The tribe of Levi. Those who are responsible for the worship and the care and the transportation, the assembly of the tabernacle as they go through the wilderness. So they kind of, they're they're a hedge around the sacred zone. And then there are three tribes on the north, three on the east, three on the south, three on the west. The other tribes are all 
equally or uh, symmetrically spread around the tabernacle, which is the very center of the camp. Now, we also should make a comment even further about the geometry. So you have the three zones on the mount, and we have three zones here. Uh, There's your tent in the courtyard and the tabernacle. By the way, this is a real picture of a tabernacle. It's a life-size replica that was set up near a lot in Israel. So it's actually way out of the way. If you come with us to Israel next March, uh, we won't be able to get down there because it's about 250 miles off the track uh, for where you go to see everything else in Israel. It's way down in the desert. Uh, I would love to get there at some point, but this is the setup they've got to try to give you a real live sense of this is what it looks like. So we remember that there's three zones And it's oriented east-west on its axis. The most sacred zone will be in the west over there. And this means that there are two squares, and they seem to be equal squares, 50 by 50. The Holy of Holies and the Holy Place lie in one zone. So there you got 50 by 100. There's the 50 by 50 square. Uh, The Holy of Holies and the Holy Place are in the zone to the west. The court constitutes the other square. And of course, you have the different furnishings that are arranged. And the as much as we talk about these in sermons, Remember that it's very simple. These are people who don't have a big educational background. They don't know much about God. So beware the books you read, the places you can find online that will give incredibly elaborate, detailed explanations of the symbolism of the tabernacle. It almost couldn't have detailed, complicated symbolism. Because the people aren't ready for that. They know about zero about God. They just know that he did a really incredible job getting them through the Red Sea. But, and he's been providing for them. But they're new to this. So don't assume they're going, I wonder if this is Jesus. No, they're not. Uh, they couldn't be. However, notice the plan here. So we go a little closer and you can again see how things are set up. Very simple. Two items of furniture in the court. Three in the holy place and one in the holy of holies. The other thing that's fascinating is that if you draw diagonals in the two halves, it seems likely that the altar of burnt offering was positioned at the very center of the diagonals and that the Ark of the Covenant is at the very center of the diagonals in the holy of holies. Uh, which is at least a geometrical reinforcing of God's, the centrality of what's going on there, God's presence, and uh, our relation with him. So we talked about the dimensions already. I've got those other dimensions on there as well. So the furnishings. Well, what do we get? Start from the very center. The lead-in in 25, 1 to 9 God asks for an offering to build 
this tent. And he says to Moses, 25, 8, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then it begins, and you'll notice the sequence in the directions God gives starts with the most important and the very center on the interior and then will work outward to decreasing sanctity as we go along. We start with the ark. And this is, by the way, the ark model that they've made at that nice uh, replica of the tabernacle out by a lot in Israel. Uh, so it's a rectangular wooden chest, gold overlay, in the Holy of Holies. It is where the presence of God is concentrated. It will contain two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, which represent God's word, God's character, that he communicates with us. This is what you come to God, you want to hear him. You come for that reason. And of course, they're called the tablets of the covenant, and this is the Ark of the Covenant. It reminds you of relationship. Notice how relational everything is in the assumptions here. We tend to say, oh, you know, that's a, that's a Christian idea that you have a relationship with God personally. No, no, actually, this is all through the Bible that you enter relationship with your creator. The mercy seat is the top. It's a slab of pure gold connected with the Day of Atonement because the blood of the sacrifice is placed there. It has to do, it evokes getting forgiveness this is where you obtain forgiveness. This is where God will meet with Moses or the high priest to communicate. And then there are the cherubim, which are nicely rendered in this one. We obviously don't have any pictures from the ancient world, but there is a common fig feature in ancient iconography where we see culture to culture the use of two winged creatures who flank the left and right sides of a throne and say, my suspicion is that the cherubim represent exactly that, that they are the winged creatures who flank God's throne. You don't see the chair because you don't see God. But they imply that he is enthroned here. So the Ark of the Covenant signifies kingship, rule, power, sovereignty, control, all of this. So it's, it's actually very simple, straightforward meanings, but it's very rich in meaning. Then we go through the veil and come into the holy place. There is the tabernacle's table of the showbread or the bread of the presence. Twelve loaves, fresh each Sabbath, on the north side of the holy place. Acacia wood overlaid with gold. Why bread? Why twelve? Well, twelve represents the twelve tribes. So the twelve tribes are right near the presence of God. 
They're in his purview of care. Why bread? Bread is food. We need it. In the Near East, all around Israel, we know that in temple after temple, worshipers would bring food and the idea in Assyria, Babylon, Canaan, Egypt, and the Hittites, and so on and so on, is that when you bring food to the temple, it's so that the gods can eat it. You are giving your gods breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. And if you don't, they get really mad. So that if there's a flood or an earthquake or a fire in countries like, say, over in Mesopotamia, we actually have records of the people saying, oh, no, who did we forget to feed? Going up and down the river trying to find out which temple has been neglected. And the priests would say that this food is going to the gods. And then the priests would sneak it away and eat it. Herodotus, the Greek historian, actually comments on this, 5th century B.C., when he is traveling, he goes to Mesopotamia and he goes, they're not really giving it to the gods, and the gods are eating it, they're eating it. Like he's very indignant, like nobody had known this before. What is so unusual here is that in Israel, when we bring the food to God, there is no pretense God is eating it. The priests get to eat it. And he just says that. God doesn't need food from us. God doesn't need breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snacks. He's just fine. The priests do. <laughs> and so God provides for his people. So instead of the bread signifying us providing something God needs, the bread signifies God providing our needs. And what's so remarkable is this is like the only temple tabernacle in the whole Near East where that order was reversed from everybody else. This is the only one where it's about God providing for us. Then on the other side, on the south side, the lampstand holding seven lamps made of gold to illuminate through the night. Why light? Well, because God's presence provides light. It's illumination. Yes, it's insight. Yes, it's I, I can't walk if I don't have light. I will stumble. I'll run into things. I do that sometimes when the light's on. But uh, without light, we're really in the dark and going to blunder around. And so we have the seven-branched menorah. The way it's described, you'll notice the, the leaves. Of, there, there's Actually, it's described like a tree. So it may be to evoke the tree of life which is what you associate with God's provision for us, the provision of life, which of course evokes us back to the garden and creation. And what we lost in Eden when we lost the presence of God, we also lost access to the tree of life. Then it describes the courtyard, the sort of the tabernacle, well, not the courtyard yet, sorry, the tabernacle structure itself and the coverings that are there, the planks, how you set it up, the dimensions, the veil, and then the outer court, the 
altar of burnt offering in the court. There's the bronze laver you can see. So you have a, the, the courtyard, uh, the enclosure, which of course is clearly demarcated so that it is distinguished from the outside. This is a special sacred place. Remember Eden? It's marked off because God's present there and we can enjoy his presence. We can worship him. We can serve him. And in the... That went backwards there. Interesting. Okay, in the courtyard, we'll stick there for the moment, uh, the altar of burnt offering outside is, of course, where you bring your burnt offerings, acacia wood overlaid with bronze. Notice this, farther we get from the very presence of God, the quality of the metals goes down. Uh, we're, out, we're doing bronze out here, uh, and that's intentional. Uh, he describes the oil for the lamps that the menorah will burn, uh, we also will get to the bronze laver, but after describing the courtyard then, we get the oil for the lamps. That's why I had that picture there, for the oil. I forgot that. Okay, and then it describes, chapter 28, the priest's garments, their vestments, the leaders of worship, and it gives you all the details of what they're going to wear. Then, chapter 29, the description of the ritual to install the priests their consecration and so you get all the details you've got there the turban on top you've got the uh, breastplate with the 12 stones with the names of the tribes inscribed on the stones and the urim and tumim which you put in a little container inside in the back of the breast piece and so on and so we have the details of what they will wear and then, interestingly, he goes back to the altar of incense in describing this. I'm giving this in the order in which it shows up. The altar of incense is in the holy place right in front of the veil. It is to twice a day offer incense. Acacia wood overlaid with gold. Why do you offer incense? People often will relate that to prayer, and certainly the priests will be representing the people and bringing them before God by praying for them. But who has appeared? What does the incense give you? It gives you a cloud. Who's appeared in a cloud? That's God. So it may be that it's actually a way for the person who is standing there to remember that God is right beyond the veil, if you will, that he's there and we're dealing with him. The, the laver made of bronze, now we're in the courtyard right in front of the entrance to the holy place used for purification. It's, it's, again, it's a ritual reminder that entering God's presence, I can't bring sin. I can't bring all that is corrupt in myself to him. Then he describes the anointing oil, the incense, and tells you of the special workman, the expert craftsman who will build and oversee the other workers, 
two guys, Bezalel and Oholiab. If any of you are looking for names for young children, I just want to I'd love to see somebody use Bezalel. Uh, I haven't gotten anybody to take me up on that one. Uh, But they, it says, have abilities granted by the Spirit of God. And these are abilities or skills to make things. They're expert craftspersons. And then we end the plan and all the details about the furnishings with a simple note, 31, 12 to 18, to keep the Sabbath. It reminds you then of the law. So why would we interject a command about keeping the Sabbath right here after all these directions? Well, several reasons. One, do you want to have a rationale to misuse people For heaven's sakes, God gave us the instructions for this tent. We've got to work 24-7, night and day. Everybody, come. You treat your people like a machine. And God says, no, they're still humans. And I understand that. Take the Sabbath. It's set apart for me. And of course, what's the tabernacle about? It's about worshiping God, connecting with God. So what's the Sabbath about? It's about worshiping God and connecting with God. God says, don't undercut what you're working on, (laughs) keep the Sabbath. In addition, keeping the Sabbath reminds us of creation because when did God keep Sabbath? Oh, we're back in Genesis 2, the seventh day. Creation is in seven parts. God keeps Sabbath. By the way, and this is something you can see uh, as you go back and study the text in more detail, it delineates actually the instructions in 25 to 31 in seven speeches of God, interestingly enough. And now with the seventh, we're told, keep the seventh day separate for God. Interesting. There's some sort of a coupler going to Genesis and creation. So 2942 For the generations to come, this burnt offering is to be made regularly at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. There I will meet you and speak to you. There also I will meet with the Israelites and the place will be consecrated by my glory. So I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Okay, so we've set up. We haven't set up. We've gotten the instructions for the tabernacle. What's the message? So we're trying to look at the tabernacle itself. What would it communicate? And we're trying to look at how it fits in the big story. And what would that tell us about what it communicates? So let's, for the moment, go towards the details. What does all the furniture in there communicate? What's the point? Well, there's a number of things you could say, but I think that what we have to keep it to is that we're getting large-scale object lessons about God and how we relate to God. That's really what the tabernacle gives us. Uh, Again, it's not the tent pegs or the nails of Jesus' cross. 
they're never going to get that. The tent pegs are helping hold it up. That's what a tent peg does. That's basically what the Israelites would see. Don't make it something it doesn't have to be. What would they have gotten out of it? Well, we come into the outer court. There's an altar for burnt offerings. There's a laver. I'm bringing a sacrifice, giving to God. I need forgiveness because I'm a sinner. I need to be pure, the laver. I come into the holy place. The incense altar, the table for showbread, the menorah. There is an aura of mystery in here. Don't miss that God is mysterious. God is not just like you and me. I don't run into him commonly at Marketplace Mall. Yes, he's there at Marketplace Mall. But he's not like everybody else at Marketplace Mall. He's different. He's unique. And he's not somebody I can explain. Uh, The altar of incense might remind us of prayer. And certainly the menorah, the source of light and guidance in life. The showbread, his provision for us. The veil. Once a year, the high priest gets to go behind that veil. God's veiled in mystery. He is not somebody that you can treat as your uncle or your best friend. He is your best friend, but he's different. He's not just like you and me. So I treat him and have full access in Christ, but I also know that he's Not just like me. So there's mystery in who he is. What his plans, his purposes, his working will be. I don't have the ability to simply say, oh yeah, I got it all. Figure it out. Then the Holy of Holies, the Ark, which we've already given you some suggestions. It's a throne for a king. It's where we receive forgiveness. It's the reminder of covenant this relational binding with God. It's it's all there. So these object lessons teach us as we come in about how holy God is. The holiness increases as we move along. Overall, the setup, God is holy, gradations of holiness as we go from one place in towards the center. In addition, God is omnipresent. You might deduce from the tabernacle that he's not. It's the dwelling place of God, but the point that's remarkable is in other cultures, we're building stationary structures to meet with our gods. God starts out, his first structure is mobile. He's going to move. He's going to go places. So he's not stuck right here. And what's the danger? Hey, it's 3,300 years ago, folks. Where do gods live in the cultures around Israel? Remember high school English class doing mythology? Where do the Greek gods live? Live on Mount Olympus. Did you know that the Canaanite gods have a mountain they live on? It's called Mount Zaphon, the mountain of the north. And where are we? We're at Sinai. And where is God? 
Well, he came down on top of Sinai. The most logical conclusion for the Israelites would have been, oh, this is God's address. He lives out here at Sinai. We're going on to the land, and when we get into the land, when we want to talk with God or consult with him, we're going to have to take a trek back down to Mount Sinai and see God at his place. And, of course, the danger is they're ancient Near Easterners, and they are not sophisticated and deep in their understanding yet. The natural conclusion they will make is, but you know, there are gods in Canaan, Baal, Asherah, Chemosh and others, that's their territory. So we'll worship them when we get into the land and we'll come back out here and check in with God from time to time. So it is a radical statement of God on the move (laughs) that he asks for a tent. He is not fixed in a specific locality. God is present. Ooh. God has been on top of the mountain, so we see he's there. But where are we? We're out at Mount Sinai. There's nothing much there. It's sand and rock. And the Israelites know full well that apart from God providing the manna and the water, there is no way they could subsist out here. This is no place to raise a family. And we're going to have to go on to the promised land. That's inevitable. We're going to leave here. So God tells Moses, and this, I think, is maybe the core, the heart of the tabernacle. God tells Moses, I want a tent. Set me up a tent. You're all in tents. Guess what? I don't live out here. I live right where you are. I'm going to live in the center of your camp. And every time we take up our tents and move, I'm doing the same thing and I'm coming right along with you. I am present with my people. The tabernacle is a radical declaration that God is coming with us, that God is moving in and on the road with his people. God is a unity and perfect. I, I think the, even like the, the, the symmetry, the geometric symmetry reflects this. It's all just tailored right. Uh, and the ark, he's sitting on a throne. He's a majestic king. This is his place. And his palace, excuse me. Uh, and covenant. God keeps covenant. It is relational. He is dwelling among us. He is going with us. We can approach him. He forgives us that day of atonement ritual at the ark. And yes, it does foreshadow Jesus, but it's more in a pre-evangelistic way. It's more in that it's setting us up so we know who we are and who God is, and that creates a need for what Jesus will be, for his death on our behalf for his life lived on this earth. Because he is, of course, what? God in human flesh. He is God present with his people. And he will bring salvation. Uh, We're getting set up for it. It's all these concepts that we've just talked about are things we need so we fully appreciate Jesus when he comes. 
And the last piece of the message here is that this is where you encounter God. This is where he communicates. You meet him here. So the tent itself, its furnishings, has a meaning. Now, uh, there's two parts I said I was adding, and these are much shorter. That one, we, we spent time looking at the different furniture pieces and so on, and we're not going to do that in these next two parts. We get 32 to 34. Before we get back to assembling the tabernacle, we interrupt the story. Or do we? Actually, this is the same story. It's a story about the cow God didn't want, the golden calf. Uh, the Israelites are down in the valley. Moses has been gone for 40 days, folks. And the Israelites say, what happened to him? I don't know if he's ever coming back. But you know what we need? We need to get out of here. We need to go to the land of promise where we can sustain life and raise a family. But I don't want to just go alone. We need something. We need a God to go with us. We need a portable God. And so they make a portable God. They make a little cow, a golden calf. If that doesn't inspire you, I don't know what will. Uh, that was sarcastic. <laughs> However, understand that the Egyptians, the Canaanites, this is very common in the Near East to worship gods in the form of cattle because cattle are identified with fertility and we need fertility. We need crops, we need children, we need, this is a good thing. So they make a little cow and say, we're celebrating to the Lord Yahweh. But almost instantly, it becomes an orgy and they pray to the little statue. If they meant it as symbolic of the Lord in some way, the way Aaron seems to say at the very beginning, it quickly degenerates. This becomes the God. This is whom they're worshiping. They're crediting this with getting them out of Egypt. And the orgy becomes quite a party. Uh, and this doesn't go well uh, because, of course, the golden calf is very different from what's happening up on the mount. Okay, so what have the people just done? Well, they have juxtaposed a golden calf. God is against a tabernacle tent. Why? Well, God's initiating the tabernacle. This is how I want to be worshipped. They're initiating, we need to have some God with us. How are we going to do this? They end up creating an impersonal object to replace the personal God who is going to dwell in the tabernacle. They give an offering, which is what God was about to ask them to do. But there's no planning. This is on sudden impulse. Contrast that with the incredible detail, let's get this right, that God communicates to Moses. There's a speedy construction process. The tabernacle will be painstakingly assembled. What do they want? They get a God who goes with them. They get a God they can immediately access. They go, Eureka, we figured it out. This is how we'll take deity with us. And God is giving them the plans for a tent that will give them accessibility to a deity who will go with them. But they don't wait for God. They say, 
they sense exactly the same needs and do it themselves. Only that doesn't work out well. They get a visible God who isn't God, while the tabernacle would, des- would be designed to house an invisible God who truly is God. Moses hears what's going on, and as he's coming down, uh, down the mount, he shatters the tablets. And why does he do that? Because those are the sign of covenant. That's his frustration and God's frustration. The covenant's been broken by their defiance. So we tried a cheap replacement for the presence and reality of God. We just lost the covenant relationship we just had established with God. We now desperately need forgiveness. This is just a disaster. Moses will plead with God to forgive them. And of course, we're going to set up a tabernacle, a place to obtain forgiveness. God says, okay, if you read the story here, God says, okay, Moses, you take him onto the land. I'm not coming. I want to be with this bunch. And Moses goes, no, I can't. You want me to manage this fractious bunch, bunch of people? I can't do this. I need you here. Please forgive them and come with them. And there's this negotiation in 33 and 34 between God and Moses. Moses makes his plea. He says, remember your promises to Abraham. He goes back to Genesis. Don't wipe these people out. Forgive them. And as he makes his plea, of course, it's a panic. Why? Because we're going to lose the presence. God says, you take them. I'm not going. We just would have lost the presence. And it's the presence of God we've been striving to get ever since we got kicked out of Eden. This is an ongoing big issue. He negotiates with God to come along. And he actually sets up a little tent outside the camp that will be called the tent of meeting during this period where he will go to negotiate and talk with God and hear from God. God finally consents that he'll go. And so Moses goes for broke. He asks God to show him his glory in all its fullness. And God says, well, I won't show you my face. I'll show you my backside. And he brings him up into the mount and passes by. Doesn't really let him see much, but he does explain who he is. 34, 6, and 7. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh. That's the name of God in the Old Testament. The compassionate and gracious God slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. God unveils what his name means. Notice the powerful soft side love, the love of forgiveness, the love of commitment, the love of stability and steadfast keeping with you in relationship. This is God on God in the Old Testament. You think those are New Testament qualities. There they are. It's the declaration of God that is pivotal to understanding this story about the golden calf and Israel and God and you and me and God as well. This is where it is. So God tells him what he's like and we're ready for 35 to 40 putting the tabernacle together, the tent God wanted, getting assembled now in real life. Here we have a second chance. 
and they actually make the most of it. The people who desperately need forgiveness now erect the building where you can transact forgiveness. How does Moses begin? 35, 1 to 3. He reminds them to keep the Sabbath. The last note at the end of the instructions, keep the Sabbath. The first note after the golden calf debacle, keep the Sabbath. Why? Well, obedience wins out. God's got this under control, but it takes us back to creation in Genesis. God in the seventh day keeps the Sabbath. He stops working and sets it apart. The people need to be set apart from their sin. Uh, And what happens right after God keeps the Sabbath in Genesis 2? He moves right to making Eden a sacred space for himself. We get the reminder to keep the Sabbath in Exodus 35, and we move right to constructing the tabernacle, a set-apart space for God to be at work and dwell. They gather the materials, and they manufacture all the components. And you can see, you can make your own list. I've given you where those come in that chart. But you'll notice that it rearranges it some. The order in 25 to 31 reflects what's most important on the interior first and then goes outward in decreasing importance. The order of these, the actual assembly of the sanctuary, reflects how you would have done it. It reflects the order of what you need to do when to put your tent together and have a tabernacle. And so we won't, you you can track that out. It's a great study on your own to track how things get rearranged. They have an offering, and the people give generously as they bring these materials together. Bezalel and Oholiab oversee things, and we get it going, and we put together the tabernacle. And we will come in chapter 39. The work is done. 39.32, it says they completed the work, which is a statement that they obeyed God. And then they arrange them, They inspect everything, and they set up the tabernacle in chapter 40, verse 16, following. So they inspect it, they assemble it, and we will end the book with chapter 40. What happens? Chapter 40, they dedicate it. 4034. If you've got a Bible, look there. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day and fire was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. So what happens in this final scene of Exodus? God moves in. Where's the tabernacle? It's in the very center of the camp. How does God move in? Well, there's a cloud that fills the inside and 
is in a pillar on top of the temple or tabernacle and at night it becomes a fire pillar so that wherever you are if you come out your tent flap and look down the row of tents to the center of the camp you see not only where God is but you see a visible reminder that he's there and he's real he's right there what would it do to Champaign-Urbana if there were some place in town where every time you drove past you would see a visual of God being there not a church but like like the cloud the pillar of fire something like that so that you always reminded that he's right there he sees what I'm doing he cares about me and he's engaged with my life because he's right here he's present with me and he directs where they go and when And remember the questions that were raised at the beginning of Exodus? Who will be their master? It's not Pharaoh. Now they've signed on to obey God. Is God present with them? It didn't look like it in one. Now he's not going away. He lives downtown. And who gives them purpose? Well, they were assembling Pharaoh's store cities. Now they're assembling a tabernacle for God to live in. And he's giving them purpose as they go along. So God moves in, basically, is the final description in the book. And we end up with this scene. They're all camped around the tabernacle at the very center, or another artist's rendering of it in color, uh, So can we put the tabernacle in place? I just want to close with a couple of thoughts about what's the history, culture, theology of this. As you sense, the foundational problem ever since Eden is the presence of God. And it's a struggle that you and I still have. Do we actually realize and live as if God's with us? Or do we act as if he's really not there. We still struggle with the presence of God. But all of a sudden, look at all these takeaways. We get the dwelling. God lives here among us. He's shown us himself in this brilliant radiance, the glory and the cloud. He is permanently with us, but he's mobile. He is marvelously flexible, and he's going to be with us wherever we go. This is a radical idea for the Israelites. Here God communicates his will to his people, and that is what will transform us. There I will meet you and speak to you. The king is on his throne. This is his palace where he rules. And ultimately, Eden's back. The presence of God, again, it's not unfettered because we're struggling with sin. But God has taken a powerful step towards us in the tabernacle. And it is a remarkable move that Eden comes back. God's presence is felt again. Can we then put it in its context in the Bible? putting the tabernacle in its place, its literary context there, that final note. Well, 
when you follow the story of the tabernacle on through the Old Testament, obviously it's a worship center where you meet with God. You find that there are, there, there's a number of other things you could notice about it. One is that this is the perfect setup for what most Christians regard as the most boring book of the Bible, Leviticus. Why? Because Leviticus immediately follows. What is Leviticus about? Leviticus is about how in the world do I approach a holy God? How do I live in the presence of a holy God? Why? Because the last scene of Exodus is this. God just moved in. What does that do to the property values here? God is in the neighborhood. I can look and see him down the street. Leviticus takes this unthinkable new situation that God is now my neighbor and says, okay, what do you do? Because he's not like all the other neighbors. I have to treat him, approach him, live before him very differently. And that's what Leviticus answers. It's a setup for Leviticus as we come to this point. We also find that in Egyptian inscriptions and even little pictures they draw that there is a camp pattern when you have a pharaoh he puts his tent which has two parts where he lives and sort of his reception chamber in the middle of the camp and all the soldiers camp around him and it's been commented that the setup of the tabernacle itself within the courtyard and then within israel looks like a military camp in that day and of course we're going to do a lot of fighting before we are able to settle down in the land. God's our general too. And he's going to lead us out in this campaign. As you go through the Bible story, you'll find threats to Moses and Aaron's authority get settled at the tabernacle by the glory of God. So it becomes a place to resolve political questions. When we get into the land, it's at the tabernacle that we will allot and distribute the land to people. So it's kind of a social societal center. Uh, when we are, of course, in kings, Solomon will build a, a temple. This is the paradigm. You know, the temple is tabernacle 2.0. How about the New Testament? Well, of course, there's Jesus. And he does fulfill everything in the Old Testament. How does he fulfill the tabernacle? What is he? He's incarnate. He's God present right here with us. John 1, 14. The word became flesh and NIV says, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you know what that word made his dwelling is in Greek? He pitched his tent. A very, it's, it's actually a verb that's drawn right out of the word for tent. Jesus became flesh and set up a tent among us. The tabernacle is a marvelous foreshadowing of the incarnation. Jesus in our, in our midst. There is God present with us. And imagine those years around the Sea of Galilee, the disciples tagging along with Jesus, hanging out with God right there. 
hard to get, a, get my mind about what that would have been like. That in the incarnation, God shows up on earth and walks among us. Hebrews will pick up this idea of a tent and describe it as pointing to Jesus really as a pre-evangelism. It's a distillation of pre-Jesus worship and God setting up models for how we approach him. Revelation, the story comes to an end. And what's the story in Revelation? 21 and 22. God brings a new heavens and a new earth. And what does he say will be the case? In that new heaven and that new earth, he describes life. And the remarkable rendition he gives in 21, there's the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look. God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. That's exactly what the tabernacle is about. Only now it's not going to be hindered by sin. Our accessibility to his presence will be direct. You can see Jesus face to face and talk with him. Eden's back. Only better. It's Eden squared. It's Eden to the to a far greater degree. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And so in chapter 22, he repeats this whole idea. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The tabernacle is a marvelous statement of God's presence with his people, and it's a statement that leaves us then with one basic challenge, I think, one basic application, which is you and I are also kicked out of Eden. We don't live there. And our greatest struggle in one sense is to be alive knowing that God's present with us. It's so easy to forget him. Where is the presence of God in your life? How do you sense that? Yes, you can look forward to the last day and heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, and being able to sense that directly. But that is the simplest, most assured and direct personal application. How are you doing with the presence of God? How are you doing with the presence of God in your life today? Does he seem distant? Does it feel like he didn't show up? Or are you able to feel and enjoy that he's right at your side? Where's the presence of God? It's the question we've been asking since Eden. It's the question the Israelites asked. It's the question the tabernacle answered. It's the question the temple was built to answer. It's the question the incarnation speaks to. But Jesus isn't here on the earth anymore. It's the question for the Christian as well. So I want to close in prayer. This has been, we've put together a lot of material. So thank you for your patience. You've been very patient. I just want to pray for a moment and I will stay around if there's any questions or interaction. I'm happy to uh, talk further, but I don't want to keep the rest of you at this point. So let's pray. Father in heaven,
thank you for an incredible tent where you took the Israelites off guard and said, no, I'm not going to stay out here at the mountain. I'm coming with you. Would you come with us in our day and week ahead? We know you do, but we ask that you would give us eyes and heart and ears that are sensitive to all the little God indicators, to all the indicators that you're there, that you're with us, that you're on your, our side, that you're protecting us, fighting us, fighting for us, guarding us, defending us, that we need to see. Thank you that you are a God who has come back again and again to be present with your people. Not distant, not cut off, but to be right with us. In a tent, in your Son, and through your Holy Spirit indwelling the believer. Help us be alert to the ways you show us 